Hello and welcome to Soundtrack Showdown, the only podcast that listens to two soundtracks every month, puts them through five rounds of musical combat and declares an overall winner. I'm Tristan Kane, and joining me in a hot metal box in the lawns of White City Place here in London, as always, is my co-host, electronica expert, music producer, and that's just the stuff we're able to talk about publicly, Ella Kova. Hello, everyone, and it's absolutely boiling in here. I feel like I'm melting. We are simulating the experience of being inside an RV in an Albuquerque desert, I think. Oh, yeah, that's very good. Well done there. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to really need that electronica expertise this week because we've got two very electronic scores. That's right, Tristan. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really exciting and to kind of talk about how they differ and how they're quite similar as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And of course, we're talking about uh, two of our favourite small screen binge watches, Breaking Bad. <laughs> and Stranger Things. So what do you think of the show, Zella? Well, I really enjoyed Breaking Bad. It took me a while to actually start getting into it because I wasn't watching it as when the hype was going on like several years ago. So I was much more of a latecomer. But when I did, I was instantly hooked. And then obviously the music really captured it. It, it was the sort of music that I enjoyed listening to because mm-hmm. I'm a lot more into EDM styles. And so I felt that it was kind of my cup of tea and I liked how the fusion with the visuals and the experimentation. Is that just the score or the... The licensed music as well, yeah. I liked how there was a lot of juxtaposition of scenes where something horrific is happening but or, but then or illegal is happening and then you have something like a happy-go-lucky type song on top of it. I always enjoy that because that, that sort of fusion because it adds a bit of humour Particularly yeah. for this show, because it was quite dark. Yeah, you can probably you can probably get away with calling Breaking Bad a slightly dark show. Black comedy. Yes. Or black drama comedy, maybe. And with Stranger Things, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a real journey back into the 80s mm-hmm. and with a whole nostalgia feeling. And the score was just, you know, if you're a lover of the 80s, this is like going back in the time machine and transported back. It's a real nostalgia trip, isn't it? It's done very right as well. You don't get many good TV shows or even films where if it's set in, if it's going back in time where it's done every little minute detail correctly. Like even as, you know, it has that sort of flickering where it's like a VHS sort of effect yep. all the way through. It's not as polished as TV shows you see nowadays, you yep. know. So I, I like that. I picked up on those little details. And yeah, I thought it was great. And so what did you think of Breaking Bad? Yeah, well, I mean, you said that you got to it recently. I mean, I've only gotten to it in the... <laughs> like literally in the last week or so. Yeah, in the last week and a half. And we, we hinted we hinted last month that I was going to have to get started on it. And 
even then I decided to procrastinate on it for a few weeks. Mm. So yes, I am four, almost five seasons deep into into the show. Well, you're in for a real blast, you know, for the season five. Yeah, it's been an intense couple of weeks already. And yeah, I think there's a fair bit left to go from, from what I have seen. But yeah, it's a fantastic show. It's It's more understated than I expected it was going to be going into it, sort of having remembered the the hype that existed around it when it first came out and the bits from the show that sort of got into pop culture. I thought it was going to be a lot more intense, uh, maybe even a little bit more sort of flashy in an almost sort of CSI kind of way because that was mm. one of the other sort of big shows from kind of just before Breaking Bad really. Or like it. Game of Thrones. Yeah, or, or that sort of level of intensity. I, yeah, I expected it to have those sorts of qualities to it and we're going to have, you know, long drug-making montages to cool music and things like that, but it doesn't no, really not do really. that. It's, uh, it's a little bit more intelligent. Yeah, it's quite intelligent and it's in many respects a relatively old-fashioned drama. Yeah. I think the comparison that we're going to get to do today between it, which is very understated and very sort of southwestern and in many respects very traditional TV compared to Stranger Things, which is very, while it's very 80s, it's also very stylish, it's heavy in the nostalgia and it's a lot more like what we expect from TV now where they bombard you with stuff. It's almost like the music is meant to stand out deliberately, whereas in, oh, the, definitely. Pre- whereas in the previous TV shows, music was really just an underscore. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it's meant to blend in and be really in the background and enhance the scene, whereas nowadays the music that you hear now in TV shows, it's a little bit like... It's like a third character. It's quite. Yeah. It's very in your face a little bit more. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's spot on. That's exactly right. And yeah, Stranger Things is probably almost as far down that road as as any TV show has gone. Whereas yeah, Breaking Bad. Well, I did. Uh, we'll probably talk about this later on. But I did a little bit of counting through some of the episodes, and there'll be literally four or five pieces of music in a 45, 50 minute episode, which is really really low even for television. And it was half, an easy week. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and half of them would be sort of the Dave Porter stuff, which is like barely audible underscore to a couple it's like of scenes. Drones or sound yeah, effects. exactly. There might be just a couple of little pads and boops mm. and bops or something overgoing, undergoing, you know, Jesse getting high or something. So it just sort of like dizzies in the background or something. And it just sort of just, yeah, it just sort of sits in. You, you would barely notice it if you weren't literally sitting there counting how many pieces of music are there here. Whereas you look at Stranger Things, and there'll be twenty to twenty-five pieces of music per episode for yeah. in the same in the same space of time. So I think that kind of gives you an indication of just the difference of style between these two. Yeah, for sure. These two kinds of things. So probably about time we start talking about our rounds. So this month the rounds are round one, main titles; round two, characters and development; round three, action. Round four, production and techniques, and round five, legacy. So let's move on to round one. Let's start with the Breaking Bad theme. So I'm always amazed by how short that theme is. Yes, it's definitely short, sweet, and to the point. Yeah, compared to particularly your modern TV themes, which can sort of extend for what feels like two or three minutes at a time. It's just, mm. It feels like it's what, about 20 seconds. It's just in and out. And I think it's very effective. And I think sometimes you need to, it's better to have a, like a short and simple 
really kind of direct sort mm-hmm. of theme as opposed to ones where kind of you get a few intros to TV shows where they kind of go on and on a, bit, a little bit, particularly yeah. when they're using like a licensed song. Yes, you know, which, which is very big, particularly back then, and I think it's always been big. The idea of using the big licensed song. Mm. Think of your CSIs with their Who soundtracks, that kind of thing. Which is great for the artist or the composer of that song because Absolutely. they get a lot of more money for that. Yeah, TV title theme is big money, yeah. big business. And I suppose that's, that's probably something we should talk about right away with this theme is the the importance of the TV title theme because it's a bit different from films. Mm-hmm. Like a couple of films we've talked about recently, they barely even have a main title sequence, as it were. You don't necessarily need to have one in a film. You can just kind of start let things happen and titles can come up. But a TV show, because it sort of has the way it has to delineate itself from whatever was on on the schedule before, and maybe if they've got to come back from ad breaks back in the in the day, they have to have a much stronger branding to them on a TV show. So you, even with the very long ones, they tend to have a just really distinct kind of sound that they need to be able to come in and, and hit you with right away. You're like, ah, I'm watching this show now. Mm-hmm. I think the use of the dobro, you know, basically it's the type of guitar where it's got a single inverted resonator um, okay. that produces... you've lost me, but go on. <laughs> it's basically, just picture it like a metal sort of top and then the strings are on, on top of it. Oh, okay. And so uh, it produces sound by carrying string vibrations through the bridge to like one or more spun metal cones um, okay. instead of the soundboard, like, you know, the hole mm-hmm. in the guitar. And I think... So the use of that really sets the tone of where this, the location, the TV yeah, show is Yeah, it's that really sort in. of swampy kind of guitar, isn't it? Yeah, like as you mentioned earlier, it's like southwestern and mm. sort of deserty type, like dry and hot, mm-hmm. like it is today. Yes. <laughs> I think Breaking Bad is sort of almost your perfect example of how it's just able to just really, really quickly in about 20 seconds, you get that swampy guitar, you get that bubbly kind of percussion. Sort of chemistry. Yeah, with the sort of boiling and bubbling also hints of drug use mm-hmm. in there. So you get, you get essentially the, the three core elements of the show all encapsulated in yeah, 10, Absolutely, yeah. 20 seconds of music. Yeah. So then let's move on to... Stranger Things. Yeah. Nothing more to say. That's a really distinctive theme as well. And I, I do note that that one, I'm not sure if Breaking Bad did, but the Stranger Things theme won the Emmy for Best Original Title Music. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is very much your wheelhouse. What's what's going on there, Ella, <laughs> in terms of all, of all of that electronics? It's very simple. All they're using is just a mixture of digital synthesizers and modular synthesizers, which mm-hmm. I'll talk um, further in production sure. in round four. And so it's just, it's basically that. I love the use of the arpeggios. That's the do 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 
how even the beats is all synthesized. It's mm. not a drum beat, you know. Yeah. Um, so I just think like it really works. Obviously, again, it does set the tone of where the sort of time frame it's meant to be, mm. and it captures it perfectly. And it's really n- nostalgic, isn't it? And it, yeah. It reminds me of a handful of different sort of TV and movie themes. Does it do the same thing for you or just sort of like oh, hints yeah. at a few? For sure. Like for me, there's Terminator, oh, yeah. Legend, um, like by Tangerine Dream, who were actually a big influence for um, Stein and Dixon, you know, mm-hmm. the composers. So also, of course, Blade Runner. How could you not like mention Blade Runner? Yeah, and Tron. The two that it really reminds me of are, okay, admittedly not from the 80s, but from not far from the 80s, X-Files, the X-Files theme. Okay, interesting. That very electronic kind of, particularly when it goes higher, very mm-hmm. similar sort of sound. Because I'm pretty sure that X-Files theme has to be a probably an analog synth as well, but... Mm. Part. And particularly that big fat bass note that comes through it, I can't separate from Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There's also there's an element like it reminds me of a lot of popular songs like Take My Breath Away. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the synth, the sort of low, the do, do, do. There's definitely elements of that in the main theme for Stranger mm-hmm. Things. Um, so they definitely incorporate a lot of sort of pop popular influences for sure so which is better i I love both for different reasons yeah i think they're yeah very hard to directly compare them i think and i love listening to stranger things as a pop record for Mm -hmm. some reason you know whereas i find breaking bad it's great as sort of getting me in the mood to be like to triggering that okay ah it's time to go and watch this TV show mm-hmm. or something. Or it's a very is, strong brand. Yeah, yeah, it's a strong brand. And it, but it, it, then the fact that it triggers me to get into yep. the frame of mind for w- what's coming next. Yeah, it's prepared you. Yep. Yeah, and I find that with this Breaking Bad theme, it does that very well in such a short space of time, how much it communicates. Yes. And, you know, with Stranger Things, it's a beautiful piece of music. Mm. And yes, it does set the mood and it does kind of introduce us that it's going to be an 80s sort of TV show, but it doesn't really tell us like whether it's going to be a drama or a thriller or supernatural or anything, not so much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I'm also going to agree with you in terms of I think Breaking Bad is a better one for precisely the reasons you say of it. Very quickly evokes exactly what it needs to. It works very well in that just traditional TV branding sense. And the other question I'll ask you is, do you feel that these Stranger Things theme is necessarily that much better at being the opening title as, say, half a dozen other tracks no. from the Stranger Things soundtrack, which are also obviously very synthy, nostalgic 80s kind of music. I mean, maybe it's because we haven't heard that style in such a long time mm. that they may have given a fresh approach to it. Yeah. But they're not exactly like pioneers. No. In sort of, it could have been any other sort of 80s band. It could have been like maybe Hurt. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've heard of Hurt. Well, anyways, like a pop act called Hurt, if sure. they were given the opportunity to write a main theme, like they could have probably done it. Or even maybe say if Hans Zimmer was given the opportunity mm-hmm. to have done it, you know, he could have, with all the amount of hardware and... Um, yeah, or Junkie XL, who's or another Junkie big XL, exactly, synthesizer yeah. guy. So, so... Well, not that Hans isn't a synthesizer guy from the 80s, because, you know... Video Kill the Radio Star and all that. So <laughs> we'll give him his due. He knows his way around a yeah. analog synth as well. I think they did a great job, mm. but I don't necessarily feel like that, you know, anybody else could have done a better job. For sure. 
You know, do, you, do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Totally agree. All right, so round one, we are both going for Breaking Bad. Let's move on to round two, characters and development. So in round two, we're talking about the main characters and how the music that represents them develops over the course of the show. Now, both these shows are quite interesting in that there aren't, there isn't a lot of repeating music in either of these shows. They're not very motif-driven. There are some some interesting examples of how music is used to go along with characters, and we're going to be talking today about the character of Walt. <laughs> Walter White, damn right. And the first piece of music that I think we should talk about for Walter White is a piece called Matches in the Pool. This is a piece of music that we hear sort of a variation on when he first sort of collapses from what turns out to be his lung cancer. Um, we should probably made a spoiler alert at the beginning of this show. Oh yeah, spoiler alert, guys. If you haven't watched it, then uh, either go and watch it now or just be warned that we are going to be telling the plot lines and, you know, who dies, who doesn't die, you know, yes. so you're warned. Yes, we have a spoiler alert in effect. And then we hear the piece more in full about maybe five minutes later when he's just quit his job at the car wash and he's sitting by the pool just sort of lighting and throwing matches into the pool, hence the name Matches in the Pool. And towards the end of this particular scene, he calls his brother-in-law, Hank, who's a DEA agent, to go for a drive along to witness him breaking down a meth lab, which is essentially just his start into the descent of being Mm -hmm. in the drug world. So here is the track, Matches in the Pool. So to me, that's very reflective. There's lots of sort of bell-like tones. It's almost like something that Alexandra Desplat would write with that sort of, sort of gentle pads and sort of tinkling kind of music. It's also what you might expect to hear in almost like a documentary mm. or something like that for a very sort of sad. Yeah, it's very thoughtful. 
Yeah, and sort of musically, this is the starting point for Walt's character in the series, I would say. He's kind of sad, a bit pathetic, but we're sympathetic towards this essentially nice guy who's received some terrible news and mm. he's sort of observing his life falling apart and is making difficult decisions. Mm, yeah, and also the fact that he's been quite emasculated as well. Yeah. In his everyday life, either through his wife or through his job or his, you know, and the car wash job or and then in the schools. So he's he's lived a very unfulfilling life. Mm. So that's where we're moving on from with Walt. So we, we get to then see him grow. And the, the next track for me, which sort of marks his, his progression, is a sort of a, a licensed track called Los Pistoleros from an artist called, and I hope I can pronounce this right, Honati Garcia. So this is it, Honati Garcia, Los Pistoleros. Yeah, it's like proper sort of gang music. Like you can imagine them bumping up and down in their cars, you Mm -hmm. know, driving down the lane. Yeah, there's a little breakdown section a couple of minutes into the track where it's just pistol shots kind of thing. It's that kind of a track. And it's, yeah, it's definitely an initiation type track between Heisenberg and Tuco as well. So Yeah, so this is the track that's playing when Walt first stands up to Tuco and when he first uses the name. Heisenberg. And I find that this is actually a good indication of Walter being as like Dr. Jekyll, mm-hmm. morphing mm-hmm. into Mr. Hyde. Yeah. So obviously having created Heisenberg, he is the character who can do, who's complete opposite to Walter mm. White, you know, who enables him to do everything that Walter White is not able to do. So, Absolutely. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's a great piece of sort of music supervision where this is a a track that wasn't particularly well known. It kind of comes out of nowhere, but he's sort of plucked it out and it's just got the perfect sound for that moment. Yeah, and like the supervisor for Breaking Bad was Thomas Golubic. Golubic. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's definitely he's a he's a superstar. He's yeah, a it's a great player. it's a great like collaboration with the director. You know, I think that he definitely finds songs that add so much to the scene. Yeah, he's yeah. really really good, and he's great for these sort of slightly offbeat yeah kind of songs. And he's really good in this aesthetic. Another show that he does. Well, the show, I guess he must have pretty much rolled on to doing after this is The Walking Dead. Right, right. And if you listen to the songs that they use in The Walking Dead, there is a similarity between these sort of like offbeat, southern, kind of funky, gritty sorts of songs. Yeah, it's really cool. Cool. Moving on to the the third song. This is a fascinating song called Negra y Azul. Los gringos han creado 
azul y que es pura calidad. Esa droga poderosa que circula en la ciudad y los dueños de la plaza. So this is really cool because it's it's sort of a, a nice touch. So this is what they call a narco corrido song, which is a drug ballad. Oh, really? Yeah. So these are apparently just authentic things. So it's a particular little subgenre of Mexican music, as you can kind of hear. It's got that sort of mariachi kind of sound that it's grown out of. And basically, these things date all the way back to revolutionary era Mexico, like sort of war with America, kind of Mexico, of and all of the big sort of revolutionary figures and now drug lords. They get these songs written about them, and think of it like sort of in your fantasy genre, whatever, how you might get like a, a minstrel who might roam around singing a song about some hero. This is a real world example of that. And basically the the, the world of Narco Corrido is that you're, you're not anyone in the Mexican gang scene until you've had one of these written about you. Right. So until right. you have your own soundtrack, and, basically. Yeah, exactly. Until, you. until you've had it. So um, Until somebody's written a pop song about you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, it's not amazing, of course, but it's it's at least terrible because well, the, know, the drug side is terrible. The fact that they've got songs is kind of cute. Yeah, <laughs> it's weird. It's a weird sort of like juxtaposition, is it? You kind yeah. of don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, look, you get it in other places too. I know that recently there's been a controversy of just here in London of there's like particular types of grime songs that are also written about gangsters and stuff. Again, sort of this idea of like music that glorifies mm. crime. Glamorizing it. Like glamorize it. But it's, yeah, it's one thing when it's like, I don't know, 50 Cent or someone who's making his own rap songs about himself. Mm. This is, yeah, it's it's quaint in its own different way. And the fact that it... I think it's because it's the style. The fact that it has to be in this really weird sort of oompa-pa kind of... Yeah, like... and also because to the lay person who doesn't speak Spanish, mm -hmm. they just think like, oh, it's another sort of mariachi type, you know, happy-go, like, yeah. happy positive song. Yeah, because we can't hear the gnarly language about beheadings and yeah, <laughs> stuff that's all exactly. the way through. Yeah. Apparently, Vince Gilligan, the writer for Breaking Bad, he heard about this, as you would, I guess, if you're studying this culture for any length of time. It's like, we've, we've got to have one. So Thomas Golubich went out. He found someone in L.A. who was a producer of these sorts of songs. And obviously, they couldn't get any of the real narco Corrido artists from Mexico because, funnily enough, they all have drug cartel links. <laughs> but they did manage to find a couple of artists who had moved from Mexico and were living in America. Los Cuartos de... De la Sinaloa? Yeah. Yeah, which is like the, the Sinaloa brothers or the Sinaloa twins or something. Okay. Sinaloa being a province of Mexico where they're from, also the province where pretty much the biggest Mexican drug cartel is from, the Sinaloa cartel. So, you know, there's there's that. But anyway, so he, he gets them together and he writes this amazing song for Heisenberg. And apparently they wrote a couple of versions. One, the main version, the version they wanted to have was going to be about Heisenberg and his rise and how he was going to be really successful. But then they realized that Narca Corridos have to be about the cartel winning, not a gringo winning. And hence we get the version that we get into the in the show, which is the cartel eventually getting Heisenberg with the final line being something like, he's dead already, but he just doesn't know it yet. A really cool track and a really cool idea to include it in there. And they've put it in there at the beginning of what, season two, episode seven, basically as an indicator of he's now reached a level of notoriety. He's on the map because he's got an Arca written about him. Yeah, he's got people's attention now. Yeah. You know, now he's a threat. Basically, yeah, it, it marks his transition to the to the next step. He's not just some loser chemistry teacher who's playing games. He's someone that to yeah. be reckoned with. Exactly. Okay. Cool.
The next piece of music is one that, that you want to talk about quite a lot, Jane's Demise. This is the, well, for me personally, it was the shift in Walter's character mm-hmm. where, you know, he will do whatever it takes to manipulate the situation to his liking. Season two, episode 12, it's the day after Jane has essentially blackmailed Walt into giving Jesse his share of almost half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And Walt goes into Jesse's house to check on him and finds um, Jesse and Jane passed out from, you know, having a night of drug use. And whilst he's there, Jane, after trying to wake Jesse up, you know, she rolls over and she ends up starts vomiting in her sleep and ends up dying while Walter watches on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a moment where he wants to go to her and help her. But yeah. then there's that shift when I was talking about earlier, Dr. Jekyll um, mm. and Mr. Hyde, where it's like a Heisenberg character comes in. Yeah. And stops him. And he realizes so, it's going to be better if it happens this way. Than... To him, for him. Yeah. To, it'll be in his best interest if he lets her die, um, as opposed to if he saves her mm. after everything. If, if he wants to maintain control over Jesse. Yeah. So, and even though the music is very slight, it's very subtle, it's very minimalist. I think it's right at the end where it kind of drops and it goes quite low and there's hints of like the sort of pulsating almost mm. sort of base to it. And it also allows the scene um, for the acting to kind of come through a lot better. Because if you have a very dramatic, overpowering music, it would just overpower the scene too much and yeah, take definitely. away from the actors, you know, what he's trying to convey in his emotions. Because it is such a such a close up of his face as well. Yeah. And you have to see those minute changes of his expressions. Oh, let's hear it. To me, it's really sort of funereal. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very sad and there's an inevitability about it. It's very nihilistic. Yeah. Almost saying it is what it is. Mm. It's not a passionate sadness in any way. Which is why I sort of say it's, it's like a funeral. It's like it's a, a cold sadness, isn't it? It's, quite, yeah. it's very quite um, detached sort of sadness, yes. really. But I guess that's what it's meant to represent because, you know, it is what Walt's is detachment from Jane and obviously, you know, him or forcing himself to be be detached from that scenario, which, again, is another indication of his shift. And you see 
from the performance of him struggling with that thought. You see the look in his face and the music changes and the music doesn't change to anything overtly ominous. As you say, there, there, is, there is a depth to it that kind of shows that there is something darker there, but it's not immediately openly and outwardly mm. unmistakably ominous. Yeah, I think it plays that line really well. We've both read Dave Porter saying that this was a really difficult scene to, to cue, and I think he's, he's really nailed it. Moving along to the, the last piece that we will talk about, this is a track called The Long Walk Alone. And this is probably the closest we really get to a repeating motif for Walt, or actually really more the point, Heisenberg, because this is a, a track we hear three times through the, the last three seasons of, of Breaking Bad. And they're all sort of kind of when he puts the black hat on and he's prepared to be Heisenberg and almost sort of be Heisenberg for show as it were, to really sort of demonstrate himself. We hear it the first time when he puts his hat on and has to walk alone to meet with Mike and Gus after having just killed his street dealers for Jesse. That's a really cool track. Mm. The sound you're hearing there is actually a Japanese koto. That's really nice. Yeah, being sort of processed. In fact, it's like a really detuned piano, which I think is what, is what helps tie it back into the southwestern kind of a sound. But it's real because it's so slow, it has this real sinister, nasty... Build up to it. Yeah. And as I said before, we hear it a couple times through the series. We hear it again in Season 4, Episode 2 which is the episode after the box cutter incident. Walt goes to Gus's house intending to kill him. He gets out of his car, puts the hat on, starts walking across towards his house and is only stopped because I think, of all things, Gus gives him a call and says, what do you do and go home. <laughs> oh, no, it's Mike that does that. Oh, Mike does that. There yeah. you go. And then probably most memorably, we hear it again in season five, episode seven, in the Say My Name scene. So this is sort of where his character gets to. Musically, this is sort of the, the the darkest, furthest point away from that initial melancholy, throwing things into the pool, hopeless so Walt. From someone being reflective to someone who has a purpose now. Yeah, so. and has full agency, full control, and mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean the 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 track really works well, I guess. So you know, it'd be good to kind of look at Stranger Things for sure. And how they kind of develop and add characters. Yeah. Depth, I guess. So let's move on to Stranger Things. And the character we're going to talk about for this series is the character of Eleven. Thank you. 
So it's a really beautiful sort of a theme. It's bell-like, innocent, got a bed of dental pads. So it's a sort of lullaby type quality. It sounds almost like morning is broken. Yeah, it also sounds like, almost like a toy sort of, like, you know, one of those like musical box type. Yeah, know, like a music of, box. Yeah. Which is something they take advantage of. Because we, we hear this track three times. We don't hear it in episode one, because even though we see Eleven a few times, she's always done over silence there. It's sort of really mysterious. We first hear this track in the, right at the beginning of episode two when she tells Mike her name. He asks her a name, he tells her, we hear this sort of beautiful song. So she's like establishes her identity because yeah. previously she didn't know who she was. There was not, apart from, she knew who people were around her. Yeah. But she didn't really have an identity. This is like maybe the start of her accumulating an identity. Yeah, sort of owning an identity of her own. Yeah, because yeah. in episode one, like the diner owner who sort of takes her in and feeds her, asks her her name. And she seems to genuinely not know an answer to that question, sort of what her name is or what hers could be or anything like that. And it's only that he points at the tattoo on her arm, which says 11, and then starts talking. And she pretty much just says, well, I'm 11, so she can get fed. Mm. But beginning of episode two, yeah, she's starting to own that as a name and an identity of her own. And she says it. But then episode three, there's a little sequence where she explores Nancy's room, Nancy being the sister to, to Mike. She goes up there and she plays with the music box and this theme intersperses with the sound of the music box and the fact that those sort of rising tones are very music box note-like is mm. sort of exploited. It sort of lets the two go one out of the other. And then to finish off that sequence, she winds up looking at a pin board on Nancy's wall where she's got all the photos of her growing up and she has sort of reflective moment of the childhood that she would never experience. This is a very good piece of music for that because it's very sort of slow and childlike but also tinged with a... Sadness. Yeah. yeah. And running all the way ahead, the last time, the last of the three times that we hear this piece of music is right in episode eight when Dr. Brenner grabs hold of her again right towards the end and says he's going to take her back to the lab and she's not going to be able to hurt anyone anymore. And then it's not only sort of a sadness of being potentially dragged away from her friends, but also it's like a, a retrograde step backwards. Because by then, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but by then she's sort of been out to live in the world for a bit, grow up a little bit, but then she's being pulled back into her original childish world, as it were, and this music then sort of almost signifies her being stuck in that bubble. We also get, with Eleven, some romance themes between her and Mike. A couple of very small motifs for her, relatively minor young adolescent romance with Mike. As much as anything in the show, I think it's just to sort of signify her emotional growth and she's sort of no longer the stunted kid stuck in the lab, that she's actually living in the world and being able to experience her own feelings. Well, and also to have communication and interaction with other beings or other people, well, humans her age as well, well to yes. have that connection. So, yeah, I think that's very significant and it's yeah. very important in her development, so... Definitely. So in episode seven, we hear this track. Well, we actually only hear a very short amount of this track, but it's a track called Still Pretty.
We're actually going to get to hear th- about three notes out of that before Toothless comes in and interrupts them, mm-hmm. sadly. I think it's very lush. It's quite, as in lush in the electronic sense, you mm. know. I think it's one of the nice things that Stranger Things does with its soundtrack of a, a lot of, most shows or movies that use an electronic soundtrack like this, and I think Breaking Bad is probably true of this, only really use it for, they only use the, that electronic synth sound for horror or sadness, like sort of, it's mainly negative. So do you mean like emotions. this is a good use or for a little bit more of a romance? Yeah, I think know. that's rare. I don't think you hear electronic music well, used again, for... again, 80s, a lot of 80s films were reliant on using synthesizers. But we um, haven't really heard it since then, I don't think. No, exactly. And it sounds fresh for us. That's yeah. why. I Yeah, it's nice. It's not overstated. It's not too no. much. And I think it does work at being, as you say, just maybe like three sort of long sustained notes. Mm. that kind of go on because anything more would have taken away from the scene and the acting from the child actors because what they're acting is very subtle yes when you're composing you have to be very conscious of that as much as you want to be you know showcasing your sort of composition skills Mm. you need to be able to take a step back and just allow the scene to carry and allow your, your music to carry it but to the next level but not overshadow For sure. And for another example of that, let's hear the other sort of romance theme from uh, Stranger Things, which is called First Kiss, which is when they get to go one step further because Toothless doesn't step in this time. (laughs) Yeah, so there's definitely like a warm, sort of fuzzy feeling about, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And I think it's also nice how it manages to, it sounds, while it's still, it's quite different from that main 11 theme, I think there's a bit of a commonality there and the, just the nature of those soft pads and the high tinkly sorts of synths over the top. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. But then obviously there is a darker side to 11. And so, and we get a couple of essentially sort of psychic fighting themes. So the first of these is from a pretty big scene where Eleven saves Mike from falling and then fights off the bullies psychically, as it were, breaking one of their arms. Thank you. 
Yeah, this is like your typical sort of 80s homage to like an epic scene, you know, where somebody's coming to the rescue. Or, mm-hmm. You know, it's um, yeah. sort of to save the day almost, yeah. you know. Yeah. And yeah, it's so 80s. It is. <laughs> so they do it very well. They capture that moment and capture that scene very well. So Yeah, oh, it's, it's very effective. And it's, it's one of the sort of emotional high points. Well, it gives depth to Eleven's sort of like assurance and confidence in her own power as well at this point. It's a real sort of coming out for her that, yeah. that moment. Yeah, it's a hero's theme. Yes. And then... Sort of the the other side, because the other side of her sort of psychic fighting is the toll that it takes on her. And I think we hear that a lot in a track called Eleven is Gone, which we hear a couple of times. First, sort of immediately after that particular scene, where she talks about how she opened the gate to the Demigorgon and therefore she, this being Eleven, is the real monster and Mike tells her she isn't. And I feel like in that particular scene, this comes across as almost like a little sweet, intimate reprise, as it were, of the main Eleven theme. So we'll just hear it now. Yeah, so it's sort of it's like the eleven, the main eleven theme, but it's really slowed down, softer, but then then but then it builds, and the reason why it builds as a track is because it then returns later on in a longer version, when eleven actually fights the Demogorgon, and disappears into it in sort of the big season finale, as it were, and so for there it's grown into, and we, we talked about this I think last week that sort of awe and majesty track where you've got the choir and you've got sort of a bit of an organ kind of a sound. It gets, things get quite sort of religious in terms of the general aesthetic, which is a, and that's a real common sci-fi trope of what you get when the huge alien confrontation finally happens. Of you don't go into heavy drumbeat action type sound. It's like a sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. It's, It's bigger than that. And the only way to go bigger than the sort of pounding drums is to, take it all the way and just sort of observe the the size of it all. Mm. So I think it's a really cool track and that it's able to go from being the muted, watered-down version of her child's theme earlier on 
and then grow all the way to being the biggest music. Yeah, so there's a journey, basically. And yeah, we're just within that one piece of music. Which I guess that's something that lacks in the Breaking Bad. Yeah, you know? that sense of growth through a single piece of music or aesthetic, yeah. There's nothing to really attach to, you know, as a listener. So, you know, when you're listening to it on your, on your headphones or in your speakers at home, away from the actual visuals. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So who do you think is the winner for this one? Well, if we're going to be talking about main characters and development, then obviously... Stranger Things has that. It ticks all the boxes for, you know. I think, yeah, I think Stranger Things for me. Yeah, they are really interesting I and mean, they do it very differently. Stranger Things grows through a particular motif almost track, whereas Breaking Bad definitely does use music at the key moments of Walt and different pieces of music all the time and some of them are fascinating, like the Narco Corrido is just, it's out there and it's really cool. But again, you wouldn't know, a lot of the listeners wouldn't know kind of the history behind it without, if you know. If... Without having had it explained at some point. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And like that gangster track as he's talking to Tuco, like it's cool, but it's it's that's never tied to Walt specifically. We never hear that track later on where he sums up the same courage he had with Tuco and he does something else. It's never used as a repeating motif pattern it's just not what Breaking Bad does, and which makes it almost kind of weird when they do that then for the second half of the season with that long walk alone, even though they do it three times in, what, 40 hours of television, so let's not get carried away with the repetition of all of that. But, yeah, it, it's a different approach, but I, I agree with you. I think Stranger Things manages to do it, even buried within this really strict structure of that analogue synth sound. They managed to really quite beautifully develop Eleven. So, round three, action music. We'll start off with the action music from Breaking Bad. Now, that's a particular scene that we're going to be talking about today, Ella. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Dead Freight, which is episode five in season five. And it's one of the longest action sequences. It's basically a train heist. Yeah, it must be the longest action sequence probably by... 12 minutes. Yeah, exactly. But And also in terms of composition-wise as well, for Dave Porter, he said that that was the longest piece of music he had to write for that scene. For. Oh, yeah. But anyway, so the scene is basically, it's the train heist, where it's all going well to begin with. So they stop the train um, using a decoy, like a friend of theirs, to kind of... A truck parked truck. across the tracks yeah. to force the train to stop. And then so, and it's all going well. And then obviously a good Samaritan ends up coming in and getting in the way. And kind of almost forcing them to kind of almost cut short the the operation. So we're going to start this track from somewhere around about the time that the Good Samaritan arrives as things start to get a bit tense and nervous.
Yeah, so I love how that starts, how the music really kind of blends well with the sound of the train. It's almost in time with the mm -hmm. moving wheels and, you know, the journey of the train. is Sort of hinting at both how the, the speed that the train was going and the speed the train's about to be moving as it starts to get, how it starts to get going. And there's a real sort of trainy quality just to the sound design of it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And it's basically like another example of Dave Porter's sort of like great fusion of, you know, utilizing sound effects and processing them in order to make them into some sort of percussional rhythm, you know, mm -hmm. make them completely a new, newfound sound. And so, and then when it shifts after they, obviously once the train finally stops and then it shifts into them starting the operation of doing the swap over of, you know, taking out the methamphetamine and then putting the water back um, to kind of so that balance out the weight. Exactly. I like the shift in the tone and the speed and it becomes more of like a heist type. Yeah, underscore. it goes into that, that sort of uh, tension, not... suspense kind of a sound through the middle and then it builds back up into an action sequence as the train's about to leave. Exactly, yeah. Moving on to Stranger Things. Now, as we know, Stranger Things is very much a nostalgia sort of pain to the movies of the 80s. And one of the strongest and most obvious references that we get in Stranger Things back to the 80s is one particular scene where we have some kids riding along with Eleven on their push bikes through cul-de-sacs running away from the authorities in their big vans, which bears a remarkable resemblance to a certain film from the 80s called... E.T. Yes. So here is the music for that scene called Time for a 187 from Stranger Things. sound like it's a bunch of kids no running away from the government is it no it's quite different it's not what you expect is it as, as our producer just said it's it's like a rave mm. i don't particularly think that it works well for the scene for me mm -hmm. i just think that it's one of those examples where the music it detaches itself from the scene yeah like, even though it's meant to be still set in the 80s and it's meant to be an homage etc but I think it, stu it sticks out for the wrong reasons. Yeah. It's got the right pace. Like the tempo of it is, yeah. is right, like that beat pace. But it doesn't develop. It's just very, it just carries on. It doesn't accelerate or it doesn't change over. And it doesn't have anything else. Yeah. It's, ju it's literally just that pulsing beat with the lasers. And it only stops, obviously, when Eleven, she flips the van over. And then, obviously, that was the only good use where if you had any music over that, it would it would have not been as impactful, sure. you know. So... That was a good sort of music placement mm. and music when you take the music away. But generally for me, the music for that particular action scene just it didn't really elevate, it didn't do anything for me. It just sure. felt a bit like, okay, they just put with um, Stein and Dixon's music that they created ages ago mm. that they said, oh, we'll put this 
for the scene. That wasn't Need or like, drop it on. Exactly. Yeah. That wasn't actually specifically created for the scene. That's what it sounded like. Yeah, you know? that's probably true. And let's compare it then to the almost identical scene from E.T. and what John Williams was able to do for that particular scene. That now sounds very fresh. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's how you do an action scene. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of emotions in that music that you can hear. And as it develops, as it kind of crescendos. And you can feel you, it building. You can feel the danger of certain moments and then the, the, the getaways. The emotional side of yeah, things. Yeah, the emotional yeah. contours of the scene. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rises and falls, which, yeah, I mean, Breaking Bad, uh, Breaking Bad, Dead Freight Track had a bit of that. You know, at least it had the build. But the Stranger Things it just didn't. It was just kind of one it was just very stale yeah it was just kind of like very one note and just kind of uneventful basically for for an, a very eventful scene yeah fair enough so i think we can probably safely say that we are declaring breaking bad the winner of this particular one i think so with an honorable mention to john williams <laughs> round four production and techniques Right, so here we're going to be talking about what goes into the score and how the composers kind of made their sound and what made them different from, you know, maybe previous TV shows, how it set them apart. I mean, some of the things that I can kind of touch upon, obviously with Breaking Bad, what he used was the use of analog keyboards as well as electronics. And a particular scene that I wanted to talk about was about the, it was called Crawl Space. So this is the scene where he's just sort of really pissed off Gus and sort of he's he's fearing for his life and then he's gone off to Saul and he's tried to arrange to get sort of disappeared, has to disappear with his family because he feels like they're all in danger of being killed. But he needs his half a million dollars in cash to pay for the guy. So he goes to the crawl space, which is where he believes the money will be, and it's not there. Basically, so you that heart pounding sound, do you know how it was created? I That's have no third? idea. So it's basically, it was a combination of two sounds and the third came from an old synthesizer that he used and a sample of someone kicking a guitar amp, which he then oh, wow. processed and gated. So basically, like eventually, like after a second sound creeps in, it moves into like between two pitches. Um, and then, yeah, he just kept on sampling it and processing it until you kind of got the sound that sounds like this. Here it is. So Dave Porter is a sort of a great example where he is very well known for having used recorded diegetic sounds, you know, that are meant to be part of the scene mm. and then making them part of the score. He's 
worked a lot with the sound design team and incorporated some of the sound effects that they had recorded, processed them, and then made them into completely new sounds. And obviously one example is the sound of a box cutter, which appears in its score through the episode of the same name. Mm. Yeah. So, And another example I, I believe I heard a few times was, was a Hector Salamanca's bell that he's mm -hmm. always ringing, that yeah. finds its way into the score a few times as well. Do you think that that helps ground it in the world more? Or I'll is it just, just a cool thing to do? It's a mixture of both. I think it's certainly a cool thing to do from a composer um, sort mm. of perspective, a producer perspective, you know, the fact that, you know... And it helps the sound guys feel involved. It does, <laughs> but it also kind of forces you to think outside the box, quite literally, mm. and to experiment more and not be reliant on plugins, not be reliant on, like, other sound libraries, you know. And I find that a lot of sort of music educational courses kind of use Dave Porter's as an example okay. of, you know, what you can do to with everyday sound. So say, you know, I can see that we've got like a fire extinguisher here. You know, if I get a pen and record the sound of that and then take that stem, mm -hmm. put it into um, my digital audio sta um, workstation and add some reverb or maybe stretch that sound and make it or, or condense it to make it quicker or longer mm. or faster, you know, and then turn it into a rhythm. An instrument, yeah. Yeah, and turn it, yeah, exactly, and then sample it and put it as an instrument to have a new sort of body and new character mm. to it. And I do find that's refreshing and it's, it's it, again, I think that is very encouraging. An example of that's even just from the, the main title thing that we are playing earlier, I believe the percussion there is basically automotive parts, various valves and bits and pieces of a car that have been sort of part filled with water and hit with timpani mallets, I think. Exactly. And, and it gives you a, a new instrument. And I know that one thing you see a lot, particularly with TV composers, but with composers a lot, especially now, is they're always looking for a new instrument, an unusual sound that can be unique to that show and I think writers and directors also love the idea of knowing that the sound that they're getting on their soundtrack is only going to be on their show it's only theirs it's, it's all part of the branding and things we we're talking about earlier and what better way to brand if your music is built out of the sound effects of your own show that no one else will will ever have it exactly. keeps everything tied together in one neat little bow essentially and obviously then moving on to stranger things yeah. basically utilize the whole score is all synths so you've got but it's mainly analog synths so analog basically means that it's reliant on signals that are on a continuous change whereas digital has fixed signals normal synth sound is hardwired so it means that audio signals usually follow a predefined path from say like the oscillator um, an oscillator basically means it controls the basic waveform, so either that's sine, sine, different sine waves basically. Different, okay, so is this like the, like the square and the sawtooth? Exactly. Those, those waveforms yeah. you're talking about there? Okay. And then there's the filter, then the next path, um, it'll go to through the filter, which is going to be, which shapes the sound. Mm -hmm. And then the next one will be the amplifier, which is like an envelope, so either that's delay, attack, that yep, sure. amplify, amplifies the, the sound. And then next one will be the effects and then all the way to the audio output. So it usually has a preset which consists of either like a bass, lead, drone or kind of noise okay. sort of sound libraries. So it's all predefined and it's yep. set. So you can't really meddle with it as much. Mm -hmm. 
So you just we'll like choose a setting and then it's there. dial up a note. Basically. Exactly. Okay. Um, but you can't really change it as much. It's set in stone. You yes. Have, whereas with the modular sims, you have complete creative freedom into designing your own sounds, you know, right from the get go. Um, because it's the, the only downside is that it's a lot of hardware. Yes. Because you have to use a lot of modules. Like you have to have a separate oscillator, you have to have a separate filter. Yeah, and so you're you... literally like wiring one box to another exactly, around the yeah. room, aren't you? You're, you know, so you basically the connection must be made through patching using like patching patch cords to create a signal route from yep. one module to another. And again, so this is when you see those like massive. Like, yeah, the, the shots of I mean Hans and Junkie XL are two guys who are often photographed in front of their modular synths. It's like who's see, got the biggest basically. Yeah, you see those huge rooms basically they look like they're a telephone exchange or you know spaceship mission control or something with just wires everywhere all over a room. That's that's what we're talking about yeah. here with these modular synths. And one one thing that I understand about modular synths and why they're not actually used terribly much in film scoring and TV scoring is that that process where you have to wire them all up yourself and the fact that they're notoriously unreliable means essentially pretty much you, you wire it up one way and that could well be the only time you ever get to have it wired up. It depends on what kind of hardware you get because mm. there are some where they have like a patch memory where you can yeah. you can retain that particular yeah. sound. But, but, re but repetition can be an issue, which in film is not good because often with film you might do it one way and the director might be like, oh, it's, I, don't, I don't know if I'm so good about it. It has its limitations. Later they want that sound back and you can't go back. Well, it has its limitations in that, yes, you can, but then you just have to kind of like leave that piece of hardware as it is. Yeah. Like you can't change it. So, you know, I think with um, Stein and Dixon, there is, um, I think for the Demi Gorgon sound. Mm -hmm. He actually specifically made left the note to say like that's his sort of oh, okay. note, so that he doesn't accidentally Change reset reset it and stuff. And then because then that if he once that's reset, he he won't be able to get it back because yeah. it probably after he, he's, he had so much time trying to get that sound right. So in that sense, it is very limiting because you're working with analog, you're working with hardware that's very reliant on your physicality, hmm. putting things together and remembering. It's all about mathematics and calculations. Yep. Whereas like a normal synth, you know, as you said earlier, you just pick a setting and then it's done, it's ready for you. Or if you make and you can changes, always, you just save it. Yeah, you can always come back to it. Yeah. Um, but... It's there's something unique about them utilizing this, um, and they're real specialists. These two aren't they? Like that's that's yes. their thing. They're, they're I think one of them works specifically for um, like. Well, he said that he kind of goes like in a and synth repair store in Austin. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. They were part of a band called was it Survive? Survive every, yeah. All capitals, every letter, a space apart from each other. Craziness. But yeah, that basically they were a band that was famous for doing live shows with modular synths. Like these guys are real experts with modular synths, and that's what was needed for a show that needed to have that authentic sound with mm -hmm. the authentic 80s synths. It worked great for the Change of Things soundtrack. I mean, so for me, in terms of like choosing a winner, I go for Breaking Bad because. Breaking Bad's technique is much more accessible for like an everyday composer who wants to be mm. experimenting things at home. Whereas what the, what these guys, Stein and Dixon, were doing for Stranger Things, it's very expensive. Yeah. Because just to get one module for like an oscillator or a filter is like two hundred pounds or like one hundred and fifty yeah. pounds just for that one small little yeah. box. So it's 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 
it's an expensive investment into experimenting that mm. sound. And I I agree with you, but I'm going to go with Stranger Things for precisely that same reason, though, purely because the Dave Porter is very cool and is very influential, and essentially anyone can do it. And it's going to be unique every time based on the sound effects of the show that you're working on, the particular aesthetic. But there is something quite special about the fact that really only a very small number of people on the planet can really do what the Stranger Thing guys have done. And they've done it. And they've done it in a show which is fully about showcasing that sound. And I think that's quite special. So that's a split round between Breaking Bad and Stranger Things. Alrighty then, let's move on to round five, Legacy. So, tell me about the legacy of Breaking Bad as you see it, Ella. Well, I touched upon it, you know, briefly in like round four production techniques, whereby, you know, music production courses kind of use Dave Porter as an example of mm. how to experiment. How to do it. Yeah. yeah, how to utilize, you know, everyday sounds and make them your own and not to be afraid of using a different way of composing. And mm. I think, but because of the success of Breaking Bad and the recognition of the music, etc., you know, there's been a huge sort of trend of sound design becoming oh, definitely. the score. You can also hear the influence of it on the, the show that we were talking, Thomas Glubich went off to, The Walking Dead, where if you just listen to the main theme of The Walking Dead... Bear McCreary's score for there, you hear a lot of the sort of just the clanging metals and bits and pieces again, sort of creating instruments out of things that aren't really instruments, but which fit very well in the world and just feel broken. And Yeah, and it kind of, it's, it's basically has contributed that sound design is no longer like a separate entity from the music score. Yeah, they are now, it's a partnership line. now. So, yeah. yeah, so it's, going, it's a partnership now, which I don't, I think before... It's always been like, you know, you've got your sound department, then you've got your film score mm -hmm. by composer, you know. And I think that's a nice, it's always nice to kind of form collaborations, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but with Stranger Things, their legacy, I guess, is that they've kind of opened up a gateway for, you know, allowing musicians and artists to be discovered and potentially to be used as composers for like either a film or a TV without having the background or experience, mm. you know, to begin with. Yes, yeah, so we'll talk actually briefly about how they got that gig. So apparently the way it happened was one of their tracks called Dirge. We'll play that now. So that track is from one of their studio albums that was out, out in the world. And the Duffer Brothers, creators of Stranger Things, found that track and decided that was exactly the synth, synthetastic 80s sound that this show was going to need. 
And so when they were pitching the show, they, as my, my understanding is their pitch for the show basically consisted of clips from a bunch of 80s movies, TV shows set to that track. And that, that was their pitch that they were taking to the HBOs and whatever's of this world. And out of that process, they pretty much fell in love with the music and decided, let's just go to them to score the whole TV show. Cool. And now that kind of gives hope for any other aspiring, you know, mm. artist or composer, the fact that, you know, they said it themselves even in their interviews that, you know, just carry on. If you're a composer, if you're an artist or something, just carry on doing whatever you do because somewhere someone will find you and if you mm. fit their vision, they will contact you and they'll get in touch. You know, yeah. so it's just it's kind of it's kind of um, elevating that notion of just be consistent and be original. Well, especially if you're like them and you've got a very clear and distinct sound and a very clear and distinct shtick. They use the modular and, and, and synths and that's their sound. And this was the project that needed that sound and needed that sound 24-7. And it's a, it's a perfect fit. True. In terms of who the winner is... I, for me, it's going to be Breaking Bad. Yeah, I think it has to be Breaking Bad, and it's more because it's almost impossible to give it to Stranger Things in, in, a, in a cruel way. A, because Stranger Things is so new that it's hard to it's, tell what its legacy is. They're too young still. Yeah. And it's two, too fresh in our minds, but also I think that there is an element that... Do you not think that, there's an, that it could have been anybody else that could have actually composed that? I don't know how many other people could have done it. Obviously, there are other electronica synth-based acts out there who all presumably could have done it. I mean, Vangelis is still alive, I think, and he probably would have knocked it out of the park. It's also very hard to give it to it because it, essentially it's an exercise in nostalgia. It's bringing back a sound that existed before, and it is their unique version of that sound. Don't get me wrong. It's not ripping anyone off. But they haven't broadened themselves out. Enough. No, they haven't brought themselves out, and they've been asked entirely to create that 80s synth sound. They haven't been asked to take the 80s sound and attach it to a Hans Zimmer type thing to it. make it sound like 2018. Yeah. No, they're not. They make it sound 80s. Yeah, so they haven't really modernised it in any way. or. But then you listen to like a score for something like Thor Ragnarok, which has also done the synth thing shortly in the wake of, of Stranger Things. Yeah, so there, but there's there still casual developments, though, whereas I think with Stranger Things, it, they're quite, they've limited themselves. It's quite a very mm. sort of, they've, it's a quiche. No, no. Quiche. Niche. <laughs> <laughs> That's the heat talking people. Yeah. And possibly hunger. Yes. <laughs> Someone needs it's an egg-based snack. <laughs> Yeah, it's a niche, basically, that they've mm. incorporated. And I think they've got a long way to go. They've sure. only just begun. They need some more time to kind of... Congre- they need to develop their sound as composers. Mm. So, yeah, I'll go for Breaking Bad. And I will as well. Which leads us to our result. Winning by a score of 7 to 3... Is Breaking Bad. Whoop, whoop. Excellent. Surprised? Um, no, I think I'm not really surprised. Like I said, I think with Stranger Things, they've just got, they've had a great start, but mm. they've got a long way to go. And I'm intrigued to see what they have in store for like the coming years, if they get a chance to do another TV show or maybe potentially another film and just to mm. see how they kind of expand their sound. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'll be intrigued to see it go with their journey there. I'm slightly surprised, if only because there's so little music in Breaking Bad. <laughs> but I, 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 I 
suspected walking through the door into this very hot box of doom, I suspected that maybe Stranger Things is going to do a bit better just because of how stylish it is and how much music. It's more of a concept. It's yeah. a very completed concept. Yeah, and it's such a big part of that show. Whereas you could ignore the music to Breaking Bad, I feel, almost. Like, it's there, but it's it's never, or almost never, the the big show that you're watching right now. It's the acting and the storyline is is what people are into Breaking mm. Bad for. Whereas when you I watch... kind of disagree a little, but still, I don't think it would have worked without that particular style of music. That's probably true. But it's such a big part of Stranger Things, is that like... But it, I think it overtook Stranger Things at mm. times. I and just, that's probably where we've where marked it's, it down it's, on this. Yeah, it's a positive and then it's a negative. The fact that it's such a crucial focal point of this the series, it's kind of its downfall because mm-hmm. there are many scenes where it just stands up for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, it does, you know? like that action scene. Yeah, and a few other scenes where it's just there just for the sake of it or just to kind of almost show off that, like, hey, listen to this modulus and listen to this effect or, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not really adding anything to the yeah. scene or elevating it. For sure. Whereas at least when Breaking Bad does show off with a piece of music like the Narco Corrido, it does something cool with it. It makes a massive story point about it and it just runs Exactly. This, it makes a point to it. Yeah. Great. Cool. So just a little introduction to our next month's episode. It'll be our fifth episode. Yeah, and this time five. Yeah. It's like it's cooled down by then. Hopefully. Well, it's going to be August, so probably not. But yeah. But what we're next week we'll be discussing two influential and underrated female composers slash music artists of our twenty first century who take the experimentation to sound and sound design to the next level. So I mean we're gonna be hearing more electronic music next week, Ella. Yeah, but, but on this gonna be a mixture of electronic and orchestral. Oh good. Yeah, so we're gonna be talking about um, Under the Skin by Mika Levi. Versus Le Marge de l'Empire by Emily Simone, which in English means the March of the Empire Penguins. So, yeah. And that's the French version of the same documentary? that It is, yeah. So there's two versions. There's the American so, yeah, version. So you might remember the Morgan Freeman narrated yes, version. Yes, and it has a very sort of typical orchestral, sort of traditional score to it. Um, whereas Emily Simone's sort of the French version is quite a treat and very interesting. <laughs> Oh, great. So we're going to be watching a movie in French this week. Yeah. About penguins. I love penguins. I'm, I'm going to love it. They're genuinely my favorite I animal. Think, I think we need to kind of get into a cool zone. Into a cool front note. I am very much looking forward to sitting down and watching a movie about penguins right now. I think I'm looking forward to actually just going into a big bath of just with cold water and ice cubes. Just, just an ice water. like yeah. yeah. And for those of you who are looking forward to it, maybe you should subscribe. And let us know what you think of the episodes by popping us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favourite podcast. So until next time, goodbye. See ya.